Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Understanding what is really going on both in ourselves and in others is key to finding valuable perspectives to solve problems in life. Michael Ventura is an accomplished entrepreneur and the author of Applied Empathy. In this conversation, we explore getting to deeper levels of understanding and trust and the practice of having empathy for yourself and for others. Whether it be um, overcoming a fear or getting more clear on your purpose or learning how to be more present and mindful, whatever it is, if you've done that work on yourself, you are becoming a more versatile person for other people also. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. This conversation took place with a live online audience of tens of thousands around the world. Sign up at wiserconversations.org to participate live in the future. What is empathy? Empathy is perspective taking at its fundamental, most simple core. It is about learning how not just to take perspective on someone else by saying, what would I do if I was in their shoes? But what, it, what, what do they want to do in their shoes? Because if I was in your shoes, I might do something different, right? And that's, that's the folly with empathy. Why a lot of people kind of get it wrong is they think, it's what, what would Michael do in Derek's shoes? No, it's what does Derek do in Derek's shoes? And how do you get there? That's right. The golden rule versus the platinum rule. So that's the thing, right? So the golden rule, the thing I've always had the problem with is, no, well, I would do it differently or I would want you to do it differently. I would want you to be this way to me versus I think you might, might want me to treat you differently. Yet that rule, which is so simple, and it's so kind of prevalent in all the different spiritual and religious cultures is do as to others as you would, you know, you would want them to do unto you. And I think that is kind of like a misdirection. 
isn't it? When you think about what empathy is. So tell us about what the platinum rule, how does it move beyond that? Yeah. So the, the platinum rule would be do unto you as you would have me do unto you. But the problem with that and the reason why people don't do it is because it's harder and you have to do two things that most people don't want to do. You're going to have to ask questions, which sometimes might be uncomfortable questions, or you might have to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation in order to find out. And the other thing is you might have to change your behavior. And no one likes to change behavior, right? Everyone wants to assume that the way you act is, is, is the best way to act. But if I went over, if I came into the room and I saw you across the room and I, and I noticed you had, I perceived that you were sad. And then I walk across the room and I said, Derek, you look sad. Uh, is there anything I could do? That ask might be because for me, what I would want is someone to come over and ask, what can I do to help? And then you might say, I, you know, I'm not having a great day. Could you just you know, give me some space? And then I'm going to have to accept that what I thought was the right thing to do wasn't, and then go change my behavior. And so that, that work is harder work, but that's the work that gets us to real understanding. Right. And so you, what you mentioned is the starting point or a starting point is the questions, the questioning. And you were doing a lot of this in your work at Sabrosa and that how you, that's how you got to the book. And is that, is that the path that started you on this, this inquiry? Was it the noticing that it's the questions that start the journey? Absolutely. I was noticing that particularly in the consulting business, there's a tendency from a lot of different sides to be, always be the smartest person in the room. And everyone's always trying to say the thing that's smarter than the last person. And it's, it's this like multi-sided match where everyone's sort of bouncing this smart ball back and forth to each other. And what I started to notice was the best, most insightful information in meetings wasn't coming from declarative statements. It was coming from questions. It was coming from who's the best question asked they might not prove. They might instead just be asking a great question. So what I've noted is by building the muscle of inquiry and learning how to ask good, meaningful questions, you get to more powerful insights. And that is the foundation or the, the first steps towards bridging to empathy? Yes, because with, with that inquiry, you'll get the insight into someone else's life or world and with that insight they'll understand what it's like to be them a bit more you know one simple tactic that i often tell people is if you change the normal questions like the kind of mundane everyday questions that we tend to ask each other so in those first few minutes before a meeting starts when someone says how are you and you give that person the same answer you've given five other people that day what if instead of saying how are you you said hey derek What's it like to be you today? It's kind of the same question, but it's not. It lands on your ears differently. It makes you take a pause. It makes you think, I'm going to get a much more interesting answer. And so if we just start by taking a look at some of those rote formulaic questions that we ask each other and just start to say, well, what would it take to rephrase that or to in a way that felt more interested and interesting, you yield some deeper results. Right, right. Well, one of the things in your like book and your work, you have kind of framed up different personas. What are those about and what, what do they bring? So the 
personas are really designed to show that unlike a Myers-Briggs or some kind of typing tool, this is different ways of modeling empathic behavior and that we can use different ones at different times. So I'm not going to diagnose you and say you're this and I'm a learning that sometimes going back to the, the behavior we were just talking about, the inquirer is the right archetype to embody. To embody an archetype of an inquirer means that you're going to really focus on the question asking and really get to great questions to unlock a meaningful truth. And the convener's behavior is about not just worrying about the person that you want to understand better, but the, the environment that you're setting the place for that understanding to occur, right? So if it's a brainstorm, you know, you know that brainstorm, you want the room to be a little cooler. You want to make sure it's set at the right time of day when people have the energy versus this is going to be an uncomfortable late conversation. And maybe we should take this one-on-one outside of the office and take a walk and talk or something like that. The, the convener sort of knows where to go to have those meaningful conversations occur. And so we've dev- designed seven of them, seven different ways of being And good empaths are versatile empaths, and they know when to shift gears from one to another in order to get what they want. That's super interesting, actually, because you just went into the idea that, first of all, it kind of reminds me of the idea of like being in a different state or preparing yourself for a different state, a mental state, um, depending on the context or the situation or the person. But also what you kind of broke down is it's actually more holistic, where the environment or the ritual or your physiology is all just as important. Absolutely. And, and to add, it's also important to know what yours is relative to someone else's. Another archetype that, uh, that I personally don't identify with very strongly is that of uh, what we call the alchemist. And the alchemist understands through experimentation, right? It's like like the inventor that there's a famous quote from Thomas Edison that I never remember properly, but something to the effect of, I didn't fail at making a light bulb. I learned 495 ways to not make one before I made one. Right. And, and so for an alchemist, failure is not failure. Failure is an opportunity to understand, to empathize with a problem more deeply. And for me, I'm not wired that way. That's not a natural place I go. But sometimes in my work, I'm working with people who are inherently, if you're an inventor, if you're a, um, uh, a, a UX designer, something like that, a lot of the time that trial and error, that A-B testing is how you learn and, and refine your work. And so if I'm going to work with someone like that, I sometimes have to kind of prep myself and say, okay, how, how would an alchemist think about this conversation and how can I get a little closer to their world so that maybe we understand each other a bit more. Right. And I guess what if people don't know what they are, let alone what others are? Mm -hmm. So that's inevitable. I think that even when I go through all seven of them and people self diagnose, right. uh, You'll, you'll, you'll inevitably find that people have a perception of what they are that's slightly different than than what maybe their colleagues or their friends would think that they are. Uh, and so I, I focus less on it as a diagnosis and more of it as an awareness. And that's why I often refer to it as sort of gears of car. Uh, good versatility would mean that like, even if I'm not a great fill in the blank archetype, I know in this moment, I should probably try to get a little closer. It feels like this is a time and space to do that. And it does take a little intuition. It does take 
clinical practice, you'll get some things wrong before you get them right, but that's okay. I mean, that's, that's how we learn. And if we, and if we want to get empathy, uh, the only way we can do that is by practicing it with others. Yeah. And if you are um, always coming up against the same, let's call it gap uh, between you and someone else, let's say there's an empathy gap where you're always feeling like I'm coming at it from this angle and someone else is coming at it from a different angle. And I just can't, I just can't get over this. I can't bridge it. Uh, how have you thought about people, um, at, at, you know, kind of breaking through that? So it's, it's gonna sometimes be harder to do than, than one would like, but we can find personalize the issue. We can often find ways to make it more understandable. So for example, I talk about the metaphor of climate and weather. And what I mean by that is we all have innate climate in us, right? I was raised in New York. I know the climate of, you lived there for a long time, Derek, you know, the, the climate of New York is pretty predictable. We get about five months of winter, get two months of a wet spring, then it becomes 100% humidity. We get three to four months of really warm, nice summer, and then we get a flash of the autumn, and then we're back into winter. And that's a p- predictable climate in New York. What's your climate? What are the things that are predictable in you? What are your habits? What are your beliefs? What are your fears? What are the things that sort of make you who you are and, and knowing them and understanding them? Then we look at weather. Weather's more transient. Weather's circumstantial. Weather's based on external factors. Things are happening around us. Things are happening to us. And so when we encounter an issue with someone else, a good way I help people understand about how, how to depersonalize it is to, instead of reacting, taking a moment to step back and zoom out and say, is this person fundamentally different than me? Do we just have different belief systems, different habits, different fears, different ways we're wired? COVID-19 and the quarantine, perfect example. People are reacting very different ways to the quarantine and to working in a remote way. But when we can start to depersonalize, look at it and like, is this something about our climates? Is this a weather thing? Then all of a sudden that metaphor helps it feel less confrontational and more overcomable and more understandable. Right. So you're trying to identify, is it something that's just occurred that we're reacting to in the moment? Or is it something that's more fundamental that we are actually fundamentally approaching things differently on the whole? Um, I guess in the second situation, you then need to stop. I mean, you'd need to work with your archetype type thinking to be able to bridge gaps. Otherwise you end up just continually butting heads or creating friction. Um, yeah. Starting I mean, to, if, if you uncover that and then start to say, well, what is it we're trying to solve? Are we, are we trying to find common ground here? Are we trying to, you know, are we both just trying to win the argument? You know, and, and, and so once you start to look at the goals of, of, of what this is and what maybe our climates are preventing us from achieving, then you can start to move them aside a little bit and have that. When you've been doing this work, you've been doing it with companies, right? As well as individuals? That's right, both. And, and in academia as well. And they've all been interesting in their own way. And how have people, you know, taken it to develop? I mean, apart from like leadership skills in terms of developing a company's strategy or products or design and things, uh, have you seen it embraced more in that field or more on the character side of things? So both, but for different reasons, I would say on the 
company side, on the culture side, on the leadership and character side, it is something really fundamental and important to develop the skill because any good leader has, with the ability to perspective take and practice empathy will be a better leader. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind that that's the case. And we've seen it time and again with, with any good leaders inside organizations, the ones that are not sort of command and control, um, but are able to step outside of themselves and see how the the team operates or see how there are certain skills gaps or whatever it might be, are able to build better, more resilient cultures. On the design and strategy side, you know, design thinking's first step starts with empathizing. And so I think a lot of people want to do the empathy work in order to get to understand their customer better or to get to understand their product market fit better or whatever it is, but they often get hung up in the how. And so part of why applied empathy was so important to me was that it wasn't about case making. It wasn't about convincing anyone that empathy was going to be important. It was about providing exercises, tools, frameworks, strategies, behaviors, uh, so that people can better understand it and then ultimately make it more of a, a regular part of their their practice and their work. In a more holistic way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk about something different. Let's talk about, okay, in the US, you've just come through an election, but it's not, I mean, it's by no means over, right? The issues that have appeared um, and the role of empathy. I mean, even when I was still there, but also looking afar from afar, the division and the kind of separation of understanding seems to just get wider and wider. What do you think can lead to such, I guess, is it an inability to see or put themselves in the, the shoes of others? I'm not sure where, where, how far it's got to now, but how do you think it gets so bad? Yeah, it's, I mean, it has, it has gotten, I don't know if it has gotten worse or if it's just surfaced more visibly, but this is a pervasive and awful aspect of American culture that um, we are now, uh, we have no choice but to reckon with. And, you know, in the past year in particular, I have gotten close to a couple organizations that are working on the human rights and civil liberties front in the U.S. particularly, and I've gotten to hear from them why they think it is the way it is, um, because I'm not really an expert in that field. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a voracious learner, I'd put it. And what they've told me is that there came a point in the mid eighties politically in the U S where working across the aisle, uh, and collaborating with the other party became deprioritized for winning. And we got to this mindset where if I, I can't win without you losing, and that's how the politics really started to, to run in this country, uh, which in the, in the years prior, um, you know, of course, America had its issues in its own other ways, but there was always a willingness to come to the table and compromise and, and, and make some concessions and to learn from each other and to try to be, um, you know, as, as uh, our president-elect often talks about, the quote-unquote united states, right? That no matter what, we can still try to come together on certain issues and, and good will, will prevail. And in the past few decades, and particularly in the last four years, that has just gone out the window. And it is so adversarial, and it is so us versus them. 
And, you know, as you know, because we've talked about this, um, the past two months, I've been on the road traveling across the country and uh, very intentionally did not travel on the coasts. My wife and I said, we want to stay in the interior of the country and really see how people are living. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, while I have met plenty of people who are uh, former Trump supporters and some who are who voted for him in this last election, all of them when we sat down and, you know, we, we, we scream uh, liberal by, by just by virtue of being New Yorkers and having New York license plates. So we pull in somewhere and someone sees our car, you know, they, they know that, that they're probably dealing with some uh, more left-leaning mindsets. Every single person was willing to sit down. They were willing to tell us about what their lives were like, what the last four years have been like. You know, one of the questions I asked everybody when we've been on this trip has been, is your life better now than it was four years ago? And no one could say yes to that question. No one felt like their life was markedly better by the things that were happening. But for some reason, there's some, some itch that's being scratched in their brain that makes them feel like that Trump is a better option. And when I dug into that more, what it really came down to more often than not was that they're sick of the capital P politics of America. And so Trump represented something different didn't certainly rep represent something better for many of us, but at least it wasn't another politician playing the same game. It was someone different playing a different game. And for that, they were up for a change. And, um, you know, whether that's a, a, a appropriate choice or not, you know, that's, that's for them to ultimately decide. But, you know, in my opinion, obviously, as a, as a pretty left-leaning guy, um, there are a lot of his views that I don't agree with. But I think it comes down to, again, people wanting to Wanting to see a change and also feeling like this adversarial nature in politics has led to a stalemate for the vast majority of the people who live in this country. And so people do want to see change. And I don't know if we're going to get it playing the same two party system that we've played for as long as we have. So part of trying to understand why someone would take a different view or, uh, you know, be a Trump supporter or, or not in that scenario is understanding that for them or for, for that person, just the sheer uh, frustration and desire for change outweighs any of the other things that people who vote on the other side would see as being more important, like maybe climate or, you know, being a respectful person or equal rights. It's like all those things go down the list because for the people in those situations or in those shoes, you know what, those are all important or some of them may not be, but what's most important is that this whole thing just changes and that this person represents that and therefore I tick that box. Is that kind of, uh, you know, one step of, of seeing it? That was the theme that came through more than any other in the conversations. And, and, and it was why people said that, you know, they did put those other things lower on the priority list because the, for them, their life wasn't better over the last two or three decades of other parties or other leaders in charge, right? So they weren't, nothing was getting better under the current game. So the only way things might get better is if we play a new game. And that was, that was, I think the, the, you know, the long shot they played for in, in bringing mm. Trump into office um, as wrong-minded as, as one might think it is, uh, you know, I think that was sort of the, the bet they took. And I guess from their point of view, it may be that, looking at the other side, well, you guys see all these things as more important, but for us, whatever, whatever 
happens in all of those areas, our, our lives are still getting worse. And therefore, you know, from our point of view, change is more important than, than, than these other issues. And I think that's the challenge. And I guess any situation where you meet someone that you've already decided you disagree with them, this is what's really fascinating to me. If you, because on social media now, you can see everyone's views and they get tighter and tighter as they get more into that, the vortex of those views. But if you meet someone or you, you know someone has a point of view or is wearing a certain hat, um, I think the challenge of the kind of work that you do is, well, okay, how can you, what are some ways of diffusing that to give the space a chance? You know, give that encounter a chance versus two sides coming preloaded, prejudging, and already having made their decisions about the other person. Exactly. And I think one way of giving that a chance is to, is to say, and, and my wife and I tried our best to do it in most occasions, like, look, because this, when we, the vast majority of this trip has been pre-election day. So we were meeting people in the month leading up to voting. And one of the things that we told everybody was like, look, we're not here to try to convince you to vote for someone else. Even though, you know, of course, we would hope that that's the case at the end of the conversation. But like, we're not having this conversation to try to like flip you. We're trying to just understand where you're coming from. And that, that simple reframing and, and, and uh, architecture of the conversation, you could see people's shoulders drop. You could see their face soften and, 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 and just drop some of the tension because they're so used to having to fight. And they're so used to someone looking to try to convince them or tell them they're wrong or that their views don't matter. And, you know, we spent two hours one night with this couple who were very right leaning people who had very strong religious views that sort of bleed into their politics. But there was never a harsh word spoken between us. We had a very amicable conversation. We talked about the pros and cons of women's rights and equality and, and, and showed them, you know, from our vantage, living in a city where equality, diversity, and equal rights really matter. I mean, not to, not to say that they don't matter elsewhere, but when you live in a predominantly white or homogenous neighborhood, right, where, where the only people around you are people who look like you, it's hard to understand how important the, the, the equality uh, values are because everyone's already playing from the same uh, uh, position. And so mm. when you start to realize like when you, when you live in New York and you live in an extremely diverse smart, uh, city where there are lots of different views and lots of different people, what if half of them just couldn't do what, what I do? Right. You know, like, the, mm. and then they're like, Oh yeah, I didn't really think about it like that. Like, yeah, like I don't see it that way. Cause I'm in my little bubble. And I don't get outside of that bubble that much. And sadly, most of America doesn't get outside of their own bubbles. This is the first time my wife and I have been to many of these places we've stopped on this trip. Um, and it's been eye-opening the whole way to really kind of see how people um, who we all share a country with uh, live their lives. And, and, and the fact that, you know, we've, we've made it four plus decades in our life and not met them yet is, is you know, probably more the norm than not in America. Mm. But it starts when you open the crack with those, you know, you open, crack open the door. It's It starts with the deep authenticity of that initial statement that you're here to understand and, you know, opening that without, I'm not trying to convince you to think a different way. I'm trying to understand for myself how you think. That's right. 
It's absolutely right. And actually, one of the conversations we had 15 minutes into it, having set it up that way, uh, the gentleman said, you know, what's funny, you're saying a lot of the things that my kids, my son and daughter have been telling me for a while too, but because they're not coming out of their mouth, I'm hearing them differently. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Are you thinking about writing a book about this trip? It sounds like it would be very interesting. It, it, well, it wasn't the intention for sure, but as we've gone around, I think Caroline and I have both said that there's been so much we've seen and felt and, and learned that um, something, you know, we didn't want to make this a job. Um, we wanted to just really make this sort of a chance to disconnect and to reconnect. And, uh, and coming now around to our last two weeks on this, on this trip, we are saying like, there are lessons that like, you know, if we can put them down on paper and share them a little bit, I think it would be valuable, uh, just cathartic and, and, and helpful for us personally. But then also I think sharing some of this might be, might be useful for others too. So yeah, there's something, something stirring Mm. in here for sure. You know, somewhere I read, I think it was either an interview or something about the book where a part of, uh, a part of it was something like doing this work or, or understanding this framework will not only help you understand other people, but it may well help you understand the truest parts of who you are. And I was really curious about that. Did I pick up on something that you had said somewhere? Yeah. It, most people think about empathy for someone else. And what I have keyed into in studying this and, and building the, the approaches that, that we've put together is that if you turn that lens inward and you use a practice of empathy in the same way that you would use a practice of empathy and inquiry in order to understand someone else, if you use those same tools on yourself, you will undoubtedly see and sense aspects of yourself that you might be ignoring, you might not be paying attention to, you might be um, carrying the burden of. And so it's hard to package that and not sound like, uh, you know, a self-help book. And so what I tried to do with applied empathy was bring it into a context that felt more accessible to more people, because while this is in many ways self-work, um, if it was packaged that way, and, you know, when I actually was talking with the publisher and bringing it to market, they said like, you know, the, the, the death for this book would be that if, if a bookstore puts it in the self-help aisle instead of the business aisle, this is a business book first, but it has a lot of self-help hiding in it, but we need to make sure that they don't recategorize, that they don't categorize it the wrong way. Cause it won't reach the people that need to read it. And I thought that was a really interesting insight on their part. And so, um, you know, one example I often say is, let's say you yourself have um, unfortunately had to deal with great personal loss. Someone you really loved and was close to you has passed away. And you've been through that experience before. And now someone you know has experienced that for the first time. You will undoubtedly be more understanding of what they're going through. It doesn't mean they have to experience it the same way you do. It doesn't mean they have to process their grief the same way you do, but you have a sense of it because you've been through it and you've gone through that work for yourself. And that's true in that example, but that's true in a myriad of other examples too, whether it be um, overcoming a fear or getting more clear on your purpose or learning how to be more present and mindful, whatever it is. 
if you've done that work on yourself, you are becoming a more versatile person for other people also. And that's what I sort of mean by that, that sort of reflective quality of empathy is if you can practice these practices for yourself, you'll actually be better at practicing them with other people. Right. One of the things that I always find curious is uh, that some people just without seemingly trying are just deeply, deeply empathetic people. And it seems to be either a superpower or it's just they can't, they couldn't actually not be, they couldn't help but be that way. And others, um, you know, I'd probably put myself in this camp. I have to work at it. I have to make it conscious um, thing to think about sometimes. And I just think that's fascinating that it's just we aren't all born I mean, like many things with equal kind of skills or qualities, but what do you, what do you think about that? And how do you think that plays out in the real world? So you're hundred percent right. It is spectrumed in that, in that way. And there are people who are predisposed for high degrees of it and low degrees of it. And what I would say is important is that it become viewed more as a practice and less as a gift. Right. Some people talk about empathy like it's this gift. And for some people who have really high degrees of empathy, some of them actually view it as a curse. Some of them don't view it as a gift. Some of them feel like I am always taking on the emotions of everyone else and I'm so exhausted all the time. I've heard so many people tell me that. How do I, how do I not feel everybody's stuff? Right. That's a question I get often. Right. And that's about learning how to build boundaries. That's learning about how to be in dialogue with yourself and know when you're going too far or know when you're when you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to be someone else's crutch too often and you just become the you know the bearer of everyone else's burdens in addition to your own. Right. So so there's you know, even on the even on the high empathy side, there's a shadow side to that. And on the low empathy side, if you're not predisposed to uh have uh comfort in this space, sometimes in many ways, that can be a, a bit of a blessing because then when you learn how to do this, you learn it as a practice. It's not innate, right? You learn the skills, you learn the tools. But one thing that's also interesting, just to nerd out for a half second on this, is particularly cognitive empathy, which is which is this act of um, really practicing cognitive understanding, not emotional understanding. Um, you may understand emotions, but you're going to understand them through cognitive practices like inquiry, like active listening, like practicing presence, things like that. Good sociopaths are actually good cognitive empaths. They have to understand you in order to manipulate you, right? So, so even empathy as a thing has a shadow side to it too. And that's what's so important. That's why I often talk about a, a code of ethics or sort of a GDPR for empathy that we need, which is that if you are going to share with me things about yourself, you have to know that I'm trustworthy and you have to know that I am going to use those things and, and absorb those things in a way so that we can build a better, more meaningful relationship. I'm not going to use them so that I can convince you to buy some product. I'm not going to use them so that I can uh, shift your behavior on, uh, against your will, right? But if you if we build that tacit agreement that we are in this together to try to understand each other better so that we can achieve fill in the blank, a better relationship, a better organizational culture, a better, uh, you know, a, a better pol uh, a political landscape, whatever it is. 
um, then we can go in and be willing to share fully without fear of manipulation down the line. So not like how we're sharing everything with Facebook and then getting manipulated every day. So the opposite of that. Right. I mean, what Cambridge Analytica did in the 2016 election is a perfect example of nefarious uh, of a nefarious use of empathy, right? They took deep understanding of people's reading behaviors and keywords that would trigger certain action. And then they served up certain things in order to shift behavior unbeknownst to them. Right. And that's why, I mean, in many ways, that's what GDPR is, is working against now. And so I think in, in some ways we, we have to know that, you know, whatever you're putting out there may be used for good or not with you. And, and having a, having an awareness for that is critical. Well, I think everything, I view the world that everything has a good and a bad, you know, in a sense of like the Tao's view of yin yang, where there's, you know, there is no, Empathy can be used for good, can be used for bad, can can feel empowering, can feel disempowering. I think everything is a spectrum, uh, and and a way of viewing the world through a spectrum is is really, a, I think, a powerful way to see things because then you can always acknowledge there's there's always too far, or there's always a dark side, and being aware of the shadow, being aware of that dark side. Because I think we do all know somebody who is deeply empathetic, but then it really weighs on them and they're always carrying around other people's bags. And then there's people more like me, which are, I probably need to pick up a few more bags of other people to, to you know, to carry them for them. But um, so super fascinating stuff. And I think as we get more and more tight, as the screws of social and digital media and the media tighten on us more and more and put people more and more into their own little vortexes because the more they click on the certain things they click on, the more they're being served up the same view going all the way back to our point about the golden rule. It's, it's, it's really that this kind of practice awareness is more and more and more important if we are to avoid really fracturing uh, societies to the point where, you know, how do you repair them? And maybe it becomes a multi-decade exercise. So it's really important work. And are you going to continue to to go down this path? I know this was kind of a project in a book. I don't know if it's something you're going to continue to explore. Certainly am. You know, I think for me, what the book has granted me has been uh, access into different types of conversations where this work is needed. So the business world was a great place to, to prove its uh, effectiveness. Um, academia in the same vein was really helpful to sort of kick the tires on the, on the trainability of it, if you will, and on the, on the way that it can be taught. Um, but I, in the past few years, have really started to look at how can this affect systems, large uh, ecosystems, be that in a particular industry or a particular uh, topic area, um, how can this be used in the NGO space? How can this be used in the in the political sphere? Um, how can we really bring to bear empathy as a tool for affecting positive change in the world? And so, the 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 way to do that does start with increasing people's capability, because. There are very few, if, if any, people in the world who would say, I don't need more. I don't need more empathy in the world. We've got enough. Right. I think everyone kind of agrees that like empathy is a good thing if it's used the right way. So let's if we can start from that place. Well, then it's about how it's not about the why. And so if we can start to give people the tools and resources, the world is getting smaller 
by every day, right? As we start to, as the borders blur, you know, obviously with COVID, it's a little different, but generally speaking, you know, our, our, our world, we are able to travel to different places quickly and easily, uh, more so than we used to. The internet connects us all to each other. Social media connects us all to each other. You know, all of these sorts of things have made us feel more interlinked than ever before. If we're going to be interlinked, we have to understand each other. Otherwise, the, the divisions and the, 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 the chasms between us are going to feel insurmountable. So just as we close, what do you think, I'm sure you have lots of them, but what is one thing or one practice that is simple for people to carry with them each day uh, to continue to build on that muscle of empathy? So I would, I would give you two sides of the coin because we're sticking with that Taoist approach, right? So on one end, spend five minutes every day on your interior. Don't just wake up and start doing stuff in the outside world. Go a little inward and ask, like, what is my, what is my body? What is my self looking for today? And you'll be surprised. In the first couple of days, you might not get an answer. Then on like the third or fourth day, you might hear like, I really need to exercise. Go exercise, even if that's not normal for you. Like there are some days where I wake up and I, I'm not like a daily go to the gym kind of person. But there are some days where I wake up and my body is saying like, hey, you need to sweat today. And I'll go do something. I'll get, you know, like, so listen to the interior and trust your intuition, trust that little voice that does come up. And the more you trust it, the louder it gets. So that's the interior side. And on the exterior side, ask better questions of other people. Just before you speak the question you're thinking about or the thing you want to know about, work it over in your head and, and, and find a way to ask it so that you get at the real truth from someone. Because if you ask people great questions, they will give you great answers. If you ask people weak questions, they will give you weak answers. And the better question asker you are, the better empathic you will be. I love it. Couldn't be a better place to end. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time.